Matthew 13. I've written on the board the title of my message this morning is called Repeat or Retreat. They say, well, what's that about? Well, I'm curious myself. I'm interested in see how this is going to come out myself. But in the parable of the sower and the seed, in response to the question about what does this mean about what you said about sowing seed, Jesus said these words, verse 18, Matthew 13, verse 18. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and understands it not, then comes the devil or the wicked one, and he snatches away that which was sown in his heart. Now, this is he which received seed by the wayside. He is not interested. And you got that crowd. They're not interested in you repeating or saying again or teaching or explaining anything the Bible says more than once or again, again, again. They're just not interested. Secondly, verse 20, but he that received the seed among the stony places, the same as he that heareth the word and immediately with joy receives it. But he has no root in himself. He endures for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises, and folks, it always will. It always will. And when it arises, because of the word, by and by, he is offended. Now, here is a man who is not stable. The church has always been full of convention goers, new thing, attachers, tours, if that's a way to say it. There's always... It seems in all the movements that come and go in my last 40 years of my life, people that have been in church listening to a message for years will latch on to anything new if it sounds exciting. But it never stays new. And it seems like it always dies. And the people that latch on to it found some kind of a hope or maybe this is it, for, uh, you know, in all of that. They just seem to get despondent and kind of drift away and... In this case, the Bible said he was offended. You know, that's enough. This is not what I'm looking for in Christianity. And then the next one, verse 22, and he that receives seed among the thorns, this is he that hears the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. Now, this is a non-spiritual person. He's not spiritual. He's a worldly person. He adds church to his worldly progress. But worldly things always capture his attention, his affections, and his energies. And he never really comes to the real truth, the knowledge, and the, the joy that God has for him. Doesn't say he quits church, but he just nothing ever comes of this person's life. He's just religious. I was in that boat once. And then there's the other one, the fourth kind, verse 23. This is a spiritual man. He that receives seed on the good ground is he that hears the word, and he understands it, which also bears seed and brings forth some hundredfold and some sixtyfold. So the whole point here, it seems, is that God wants something from us. He saves us, puts things in us, does things to us, oversees us, because he wants to bring forth something from us. And what he talks about here is fruit. Really bearing fruit is the reproduction of the original. And if Christ is the seed planted in your heart, that's what God wants in your life. It's no longer you that live as Christ who lives in you. 
But in order for you to know what that means and for that to come about, you have to understand what the word says. The word understand is used a couple of times in, in our verses. You have to be willing to listen and to put things together. Pray about, Lord, what does that mean? Not just assuming you know what it means, but what does it mean? You long to hear somebody explain it to you, at least as best as they can. They may not be the best explainers, but all they do is initiate a start in your life to know what it means, and God fills it in. He's the teacher anyway. And so there are those who bear fruit, whose religious life is spiritual in nature, not just about the church, but it's about God. They want to know. They want to learn. Teach me thy ways, O Lord. And though you've said it once, preacher, keep saying it. Repeat it again. I didn't get all of it the first time, and sometimes what you said last month kind of lingers, and then it kind of drifts. Say it again. Keep it fresh. You know what I'm saying by repeating? See, a definition of repeat in our message is to say something again. Say it again. I remember a preacher said once, I listened to a tape, and he said he had preached, so I forget how many bunches of times he had preached and spoken. He said, I've never had to repeat my message. I've never had to repeat it once. They're all different. And I think, well, let's give a standing ovation. See, he must have taught a bunch of geniuses. Yeah, he must have had all the high IQs in, in his church. He only had to say it once, and everybody, yeah, I got it. Whop. Deep. Instant deepness. And I said, man, where I am, I've... Well, I, you know, that's not meant to be bad. I have to keep saying it. Now, you all laugh because you thought that was funny, but it's true. But it's true. You see, the word retreat means to go away. It means to go away from. You were somewhere once and you, for whatever reason, whatever event, whatever took place, you were there, you embraced something, but something through time or some moment, it just wasn't what you wanted to keep doing and you sort of went somewhere else find something else, or just give it up altogether. That's what the word retreat and what we're talking about today. So the question, sort of a question, will it repeat or will you retreat? Will you press in, as I said the other day, will you press in and seek and long after an understanding of the truth? Because that was a key word here. That hard soul... When seed was sown on people that have no interest in this, it means that what they heard, they didn't understand. They didn't care if they understood it. A better word for understanding would probably be perceive. Get the picture. I see what you're saying. What you're saying has a picture. I see it. Now I'm affected by it, that. And when there's just this casual attentiveness to what is said, a lot of people just assume that if what the preacher said, if he's got enough education, it's got to be right. If it's right, good. We'll believe that. Without ever really knowing for yourself. 
And if what you've got in your heart is what somebody told you, but you don't know if it's true or not, one day that'll be challenged and you'll probably walk away and lose it. But when God puts something in your heart and it's just drilled in there and again and again and again and again, when you keep hearing it, when a specific truth of God keeps invading your heart and your mind and your conscience and making demands on your life and gives you no freedom to make an option of it, but it becomes a necessity in your life because it's right before you all the time. You'll get it or you'll leave it. And when you get it, nobody will ever take it away from you. They can burn your Bible, but they can't burn your brain because you hide the word of God in your heart. And then you say, I know in whom I have believed. First time I heard it, I wasn't sure I got it all. What was interesting, it was inspiring. Say it again. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, yeah, yeah. Uh, say it again. Is that the way it should work? Well, let me ask you this. Would that be maybe one of the functions of ministry? Is to say it again. Well, let's see. Turn to Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1. Wonderful chapter because of what it says. And the inspired things it says comes down to verse 8, and it says, For if these things be in you and abound. So you have to look back, and you can do that on your own time, and you look back and see what he said in the first parts of this chapter. Marvelous chapter. He said, If the things I've just said are in you and abound. Now, let me stop and ask you a question. How did they get in you? I just want you to think for a minute. How does truth get in you? First of all, you have to hear it, don't you? And then God has to give light to it. Only God can do that. It's his word. And when he puts it in your heart and you're interested and you want to understand it and you press in to hear it, that is, you come forth to hear it. God gives you the revelation. He sees a hunger in your heart. And if you hunger and you thirst, you're going to get filled. And when these things begin to function in your life, you begin to get an appetite for the word. It's like Jeremiah said, thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy words were unto me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. It's what I'm looking forward to now. After all the sporting events and all the boat trips, hunting, fishing, when all of that begins to take its place somewhere else and the word of God begins to come into your life and replace all of that, you got an appetite for something now that is eternal and you don't hear it too much. It never gets dull. It never gets old. It's never the no, same old. It's never like that. Because even though you've heard it before and you understand it, the hearing of it again is inspiring. It's an edifying word. Let me show you. After he said these things are in you and abound, they are going to make you fruitful. If you lack these things, you're blind and so forth. Wherefore, verse 10. 
When you see the word wherefore, find out what it's there for. Wherefore the rather, brethren, therefore, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you'll never fall. Good. I like that. I know I'm going to face a lot, but I don't have to retreat. Okay? It is not required that I retreat. I will be tempted to retreat. I will be given logical reasons to back off, back away, and give this message. But something in my heart, like a stream running free, I got to have more. So, verse 12, this minister said, Peter, he said, Therefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, even though you know them. And although you're established in the present truth, yea, I think it's right. That's what the word meat means. I think it's right as long as I am in this tabernacle or in my body to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. See, remembrance is not something new. Remembrance is something old. We're never going to hear truth too much. I've said this before and I'll say it again. You're never going to hear the message of faith too much. Because of the importance of the message. And it's not only something you've heard once, heard a series on, and, and you got a hold of that. It needs to be sprinkled throughout the rest of your church life to keep you thinking about it. To keep you in remembrance of it. To not let your mind get distracted away from the truth, but to keep bringing it back. To keep bringing back to you simple truths. Oh, how the... Educated mind is inspired to get lofty, to get out there in zone four. And it's a show. It sounds good. It's, it's impressive. Use big words like mayonnaise and rhinoceros and, and all kinds of big words. And sometimes, folks, what is important to ordinary, don't take this wrong because it's true, to ordinary people like us, is the simple truth that God gives. The simplicity of what God has to say. This is a story of salvation is so simple. As well as the story of being refined and changed so you can walk the way God wants you to walk and be a productive disciple of him. It's a simple story. It doesn't have to be complicated. The devil tries to complicate it. Peter said, I'm not going to be negligent. Pat myself on the back and say, well, I've taught on that. I can't teach it again. I'm going to keep teaching on it. This is what he's given me. I'm going to put you in remembrance, and I'm going to repeat again and again and again. If you're going to keep coming, you're going to keep hearing it. Probably the same thing in a different title every week. But if it's eternal in nature, then it's important. It is important. So he said in verse 13, you got to like this. He said, therefore, I think it's right. I think it is right. I think it is necessary. I think it's very important. I think it's a move of God to stir you up. The word stir means to arouse, rouse out of sleep or out of blase or indifference, but to stir you up, 
to keep fresh before you, keep ever before you the truths that God has opened your eyes to see. Never let them slip. Remember the Bible said we should give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard? We ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard less what? Slip. That's right. They slip. If we don't keep them before us, we'll forget them. They'll just slip. Those of you that went to school, which is probably all of you, if you went to a higher education, you know exactly what I'm talking about. How many times did you cram for a test to get the right answer and have no clue today what your question was? You didn't learn anything. You just gave right answers and got a good grade. I remember a friend of mine one time, a, a doctor was going to operate on his wife. And this friend of mine who was, doesn't have a lot of regard for Cooth, I mean, I like him. He said, the doctor said, can I ask you a question, doc? The doctor says, yes, you may. He said, did you cheat on your test? He said, no. I said, okay, I just want to make sure you didn't cheat and that you know what you're doing. I guess that might have been offensive to some people. It didn't bother him if it was. Because you got my wife in your hands and I want to make sure you know what you're doing. But anyway, let me tell you something. When God has something to say to his people, it doesn't mean you got it because you heard it. But if you keep saying it, you'll get it. You'll either get it or you'll get away from it. But God has something to say knowing that human nature tends to be distracted, tends to go this way or that way. But what God has to say, he wants to keep saying it because he wants you to get it. Now, in spite of hearing it, maybe this is where this message came from. In spite of how much and how long people hear things, a lot of people still are wrestling with it. And this time of year is not the most exciting time of year. All the grass is brown. The clouds are in all day long. It's not very warm. It's sometimes too cold. And, uh, and then the people don't feel good. And you've seen the notice, this one's not feeling good and that one's not feeling good. And this one here is weary and that one's down in the dumps. And people seem like they're just not very enthused. And sometimes they come to church and they talk about their problems instead of their victories. And, and they just seem to be down or maybe they're a little bit quiet or maybe irritable. Well, you don't know what it's like. I might. I just don't want to act like that. <laughs> Or maybe it's depressed, complaining. Things aren't working the way they thought it would. Yeah, I've heard you repeat many, all these promises, God's going to do this, God can do this, and all the gifts of the Spirit. We've heard all that. Brother, we don't see it. We're not seeing any of it. I got all excited because of this message of healing and going to be blessed and what I put my hands to. And, and I, I don't know that any of this is working. I talk to people that ask the same question. Why are they not working? Why are we not benefiting from all of these? Well, you said forget not all his benefits. I like to just enjoy a few of them. But it seems to me like uh, something's left out or we're misrepresenting something or being misled. I don't know. I, I'm, just, I'm just saying. 
I'm not very happy. I'm not excited. I'm not exuberant. The joy of the Lord doesn't seem to be my strength because I feel so weak. And I don't know that I'm one to keep hearing it. Well, in just a little while longer, you'll retreat. Because when you start throwing a question mark at God's word because it's not working for you, you're assuming. You're sort of taking the stand that I know my life is right. I know everything I'm doing is right. And I'm expecting God to do what he said because that's what faith does. It expects and it's not working. And therefore, maybe this is a time for me to just step back, rethink, and perhaps modify my walk a little bit. It just doesn't seem to be working. Well, that brings us to the retreat. Because I've known a lot of people to retreat that have retreated. I don't know if it was something that happened. Somebody said something in the church. Somebody did something in the church or somebody didn't get healed. Somebody died. Somebody lost a job, a divorce. I don't know. But a lot of things you were believing for, it just didn't happen. And and I thought, I don't know. I think I'm going to back off. So they do. They just sort of quietly leave. And then the question comes up. Well, who will you blame for your demise? Will you blame the church? All those awful people? Maybe it's the preacher. Will you blame the preacher? That's easy to do. Blame him. It's his fault. You see, it's not your fault. Everything about you is just pristine. And you got all excited because somebody has misled you with a misrepresentation of God and his word. Of course, that's what happened. Hath God said that? Is that what God said? So you start thinking like that. And all that wonderful word begins to have a question mark where there was once a period. You sure about that? You begin to back away just a little bit. I wish I'd never gone to that church. I remember one guy said one time, I wish I'd never heard of all this. Oh, he was excited when he first came to the Lord. He was a testifying machine. He would testify to the president. And he'd probably get him on his knees because he was just a passionate man. Then an old back pain came back, and it didn't go away, and he quit. It seemed to me like his whole relationship was based on whether or not he got his back healed. If my back doesn't get healed, I'm not going to heaven. Now, you're going to have to heal my back. If you want me to keep witnessing, you're going to have to do something about my back. Because if you don't, I'm going to sound the retreat. And I think there's a lot of people like that. They come to God. They've heard these good words, the good promises of God. They don't seem to see much evidence of it. So they begin to question God, question the message, the motive of the preacher maybe. They begin to back off. Or go somewhere else or just back away like, like the thorny soil that we spoke of a while ago. I mean, it's not bearing fruit. Too many distractions, too many problems. I don't know, something like that. But perhaps, just maybe, if you're going through that, maybe the problem for your retreat is sin. Maybe it's nobody's fault in this world but yours. 
Maybe the lousy attitude and the indifference that you're feeling and the luck that's in your life. Maybe it's because of sin. Sin in your life. Oh, all my sins are under the blood. They're all under the blood. That's true. I agree with that. But there are also times in which your sin has to be addressed. If you go to the altar and pray and there you remember a brother has all. Leave where you are and go fix things with him or her or them. Just don't say, well, I, I prayed about it. I'm, I'm forgiven. I, I'm gonna... Fine. But sometimes God requires some action. Maybe you don't want to take any action. Christians by nature do not want to be told that there could be sin in their life or the problem with what's going on in your life is your sin. They don't like to be told that. I think ministerially, we're not supposed to say anything about the fact that it could ever be your fault because you're all good. Nobody's wrong. And therefore, just look for the brighter day or something. And yet, maybe the problem is your sins. For example, there are sins that Christians go back to. They heard about it. They got away from it. They cried and, oh, Lord, forgive me. And then as time takes its toll, you go down the road, you find some of these things come back. Take unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. How easy it is to hold a grudge against somebody but what they did to you, what they said to you, said about you, what they did in an accident, what you were sued out of, what a thousand things. Somebody broke into your house, stole some ancient something that granny had. Worth a lot of money. You were counting on this or that, and things happened. Maybe. Maybe it's just your sin. Maybe it's just the fact that you have a real attitude about somebody, and I hope they get what they deserve. There's little forgiveness in you. Let me show you what sin does. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 5. Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 25. Your iniquities have turned away these things and your sins have withholden good things from you. Is that possible? Of course it is. Listen to us in here. What would keep us from enjoying the deep benefits of God? What's it say? See, he said in verse 21, here are you foolish people without understanding. There's that word again. You're not getting it. You're not taking time to wrestle with the word and get what it says and let conviction come into your heart. So he said down in verse 25, he said, your iniquity is your problem. Your problem is your iniquities. You know, iniquity is a particularly evil word because it has to do with twisting and distorting the meaning of the word. In other words, what it says, you don't want it to mean that, so you change it. As Peter said, you rest the word. You distort the word because you want it your way. Now, if the preacher says this is your problem, he's in for a fight because you'll never admit that. Most people will never admit that. 
Well, you believe it's your way and I'll believe it mine. That's a classic example of it. Well, I don't think anybody always knows what the Bible says. I think it's open for, well, what does it say? Read it. I've heard women say that they should be the head of the house because they're more spiritual than men. They say, well, the Bible doesn't say that. That's the way I see it. Well, maybe you're blind. I don't mean that funny. I just mean that true. Maybe you're blind. Maybe you can't see the truth. There's, there's a way that seems right to somebody, but if it's not what God said, it's a way of death. It's not just, well, we tried exactly not God's way, and we, but we had to go. No, it's death. We don't like that. We as Christians, we don't like anything to be that narrow and that tight. We don't like to think that we are required to walk a narrow life all of our life. We don't like that. Because we're given to so many whims and so many things, the other things we want to do and just be half goofy all the time. We don't want to do just the narrow way and so be so refined that it's like that. We don't like that. And when the preacher repeats that, and he said, we must too much tribulation enter into the kingdom. Oh, don't talk about that. Every time you preach that, I go through it. Labor to enter into the narrow gate. Few will make it and many won't. Oh, man, don't say it. It's in the Bible. It's one of those things that God will use to capture your lazy and indifferent lifestyle. He says, you can't do that. I will judge you if you do that. I don't want to judge you. Quit it. Repeat it. Say it again, preacher. Because some are starting to get it. Some are about to give it up. Say it again. You pray. You pray before you come. I say, God, in the name of Jesus, let your anointing penetrate everything that resists it. Leave no life loose this morning or apart from hearing something that will bring conviction. Something. May we all go home with something not only that inspires us to go, but something that requires us to tighten up, all of us. Make us to know your will, Lord. Deliver us from the darkness that we're around. The world lies in darkness. Deliver us from it. And so he said again in verse 25, he said, your iniquities have turned you away from these things. And your sins, your sins have withholden good things from you. Are you saying, Brother Hamilton, I'm just saying what he says. Yes, there are times of testing when it's not so much a sin in your life as a time to test you to see what's in your heart, what choices you're going to make, not what sins you've committed. That's called testing. And sometimes... There's a casual disregard of what you've heard. You're all right. You're not that bad. And you begin to give liberties to yourself to do things you shouldn't do. And then this is what happens. And it's hard to show you that. It's hard to explain it to you because you're already convinced I'm not that type of person. I wouldn't do that. But you're doing it. Look at chapter 30. Jeremiah 30. And verse 15. 
Why criest thou for thine afflictions? Thy sorrow is incurable for the multitude of thine iniquity. Because thy sins were increased, I have done these things unto you. Did the things he's speaking of in this chapter happen to people because of their sins? Specifically, their iniquities. There's four major words for sin. One of them is iniquity. Sometimes it's translated in the New Testament, lawlessness. It's what man wants. He wants it his way, so he twists things his way. It's a hard sin. It keeps the Lord from blessing you. Look at chapter 32. Chapter 32 in verse 33. And they have turned unto me the back and not the face. Though I taught them, I repeated to them, I taught them, I explained to them, I showed them, I labored with teachers teaching them. But why? I don't know. But they turned the back and not the face. You know what would be tough this morning if, if all these chairs were facing that way? You might say, well, it wouldn't be so bad. We would have to look at you all more. I know that. I'm not saying that. But it'd be hard to teach the back of somebody's head because proper relationship is face-to-face. That's the way God and Moses fellowship, face-to-face. But he said there comes a time and people said, I don't know about that. This is part of the retreat. A man retreats because nothing's working for him. He doesn't realize the reason it's not working for you is because of your sins. Sometimes, not always, but most of the time I would say it's sin. You take the sin of rebellion, probably the worst of sins, and probably the most common. Rebellion is when you're in control and God isn't, and you make up your own mind what you want to believe and how you want to believe it. If you don't want to go, you don't go. If I don't want to go to church, I don't have to go. Nobody can make me go. Who said I had to go? Who said I had to believe that? Who said I had blah, 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 blah. You make yourself a God, a little God. You do it your way. You want to add God himself to it when it's convenient, but your life is more or less all about you, your choices, and your way, and I want to hear good said about me because I'm living honestly. Honestly, you are. Honestly for yourself. But you're a rebel by nature. You won't submit. You don't require anything of yourself that obeys God because you estimate yourself. As being good enough. I'll get to that again in a minute. But he said, you turn to me the back and not the face. Though I taught them rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not hearkened to receive instruction. They don't understand. They have not hearkened to receive instruction. Let me say this. We have little chance without the word being taught us. And you have little chance of understanding it if you've only heard it once. It's got to be said again. If you lose interest in it or the devil can talk you out of it and you retreat, there's no guarantee that God will bring you back. He could. He's able. Doesn't say he will, but he's brought some back. And I'm glad. But back to where we were about unforgiveness, I do not have the luxury of holding resentment against anybody. But if I am, you'll know I am because I talk about it all the time. 
I talk about it all the time. The young lady is divorced. Her husband did her wrong once, or one of the other one did the other one wrong. You know how you can tell that he or she hasn't forgiven the wrong done to them? Because everywhere they go, they talk about it. He did me wrong. She did me wrong. He did, yeah, he did. And I'm, I'm, oh, I'm just, I'm so right. Everything about me is so nice. And he did me so wrong. Well, have you forgiven him? Oh, sure. But I hope he gets what's coming to him. <laughs> if you find a new crowd down at the, oh, the beauty shop or the mall, wherever you might be to get something done like that, you tell your story again. If you get around people that have had similar stories, you just seize yourself in that atmosphere of sin. And you come out of there, you don't even know that that sin has recaptured you. But everywhere you go, you take this thing, and then you see your husband or you see your wife. I wonder where they were tonight. I wonder where they were yesterday. What's he doing now? What's she doing now? You're all balled up with unforgiveness. You go to church. There's no problem with that. You sing. You listen. You read your Bible. You pray. But, man, everything is flat. Everything seems to be just, and you're about half irritable or half despondent. Maybe the sin is a sin of resentment. It's not like you have unforgiveness against anybody. They're just people you don't like. I try so hard to do what's right and to get my house in order and my finance and everything and struggle. And then here's this one over here. It doesn't even seem to have a clue. And everything they touch just works. They're blessed all the time, and I'm struggling all the time. That's not right. That's not right. Sometimes your resentment, you don't even know it, is against God. you got a problem with God, and you say, it's not fair. This is not right. I don't deserve this. And it's a kind of resentment that comes in your life because the devil's saying louder. Tell people about it. Who's that new person in church over there? Who invited them? Well, look how they're dressed. Ooh, I wouldn't want them sitting by me, would you? What's wrong with you? Who said you were better than anybody? Who taught you that? Let me show you in the Bible where we don't do that. We'll go to James 1. We're not going there, but, or James 3. And maybe we can deal with your problem. You see, as a preacher, how many of you believe that a preacher can sometimes read the mood of his church? Proverbs says, labor to know the state of thy flocks. Labor to know the state of your flocks. How's your little sheepies doing? Oh, they're bread and bed and they're button heads over the corner. <laughs> this one doesn't like that one and this one doesn't want. We're back to First Corinthians. We don't want this one. We don't want that one. We like this one. We like that one. Who gave us the liberty to have such views or opinions? I'm just glad to be a part of it. I don't fully understand why some people do the things they do or act the way they act about things. I don't. I just know that I have to keep myself clean myself.
And if you keep yourself clean, we'll testify to each other. We'll encourage each other that if we keep ourselves above reproach and above sin, we keep the door open to blessings. And as far as I'm concerned, I want to be blessed. I do. Maybe the sin that some people have is to feel like you're rejected or you're denied. You weren't voted in. You weren't invited. They had a, they had a what? When did they have it? Where at? At their house? Who all went? Well, they invited. They didn't invite us. All right. We might have us a little something one day. We'll see if they get invited. Now you're back to the same old sins you first heard of the first time you came to the Lord. That's the stuff that got us in trouble with God, and it came back. Turn to Second Samuel. I, I want to tell you a story. This came about the other morning while I was eating my breakfast. I enjoy reading the Bible. In Second Samuel, chapter seventeen. This is a story. Absalom has captured the affections of the people. And the people begin to align themselves with Absalom, and they draw away from David, who is Absalom's father. And so Absalom takes over as the king. David, seeing it coming and warned about it, He gets his family together and and the men who want to go with him, and he begins to leave. He heads out of Jerusalem towards, well, the Mount of Olives. If it was over there, he begins to leave the city at night. And all of his faithful followers go with him, those that are left, and some of those in the town. They want to go with David to what, just Run around in the wilderness. The wilderness to the south of Jerusalem is an awful place. I wish the whole bunch of us could take a trip over there. Maybe I'll just get us an airplane. We'll go. Because some of these things, when I read the event in the Bible, I can see the picture where it happened. I've seen the Valley of Jezreel where Elijah outran Ahab's chariots. I stood right there where... Long way. That old fella could move now. And I've seen where David and Goliath fought in that little valley there, but we drove right back. I just have a little visual of it. Or, or the Sea of Galilee. Just some of those things, I don't know what it was like because it's so commercial now, but I, I've seen the, the terrain and have a little bit of knowledge about that. Very, very little. But David is leaving. And Absalom, and knowing what he ought to do now about this, because he knows his trouble, as long as David is there, he's not going to have a free ride in the kingdom without trouble somewhere. So he asks his advisor, Ahithophel, and he was also David's advisor, but Ahithophel was a front runner. He ran with whoever was in charge to gain their favor. And he apparently was a wise man for the counsel that he gave was as though an angel of God gave it, the Bible says. So Absalom says to Ahithophel, what should I do? I need some counsel. What should I do? He said, give me 12,000 men at the first of this chapter. He said, give me 12,000 men and I'll go out there and we'll come up on him wherever he's hiding. And we'll just slay him. 
We'll tell the men, we're not after you, we're after David. If we get rid of him, all the men will come back and then it'll be as though they never left. And it sounded good. And Absalom said, okay, that sounds good. He liked that in verse 4. Sounded good. But he said to Hushai, he wanted to talk to Hushai. And now Hushai was David's friend. And David's confident. And when David left the town, Hushai was going to go with him. And David said, you would be a burden to me. He said, you stay here, get close to the king, get in the inner circle. And whatever you hear him say that, you know, that I need to hear, go tell the priest, Abiathar and the other guy, and they'll send a word out there in the wilderness to me. And then we can keep up with what the plans are concerning us. So Hushai was kind of a, a mole in Absalom's house, but it was of the Lord. So he said, Hushai, what do you say? Hushai said, well, here's what I would do. I would take a whole bunch of men. I'd take the whole army. I'd take the whole gang. Because you've got to remember, Absalom, you know, those guys out there with David, are, they're battle-hardened men. They know what it's like to have to hide and then be run off and, and, they, and the anger of, they're going to fight. And, you know, your, your dad, David, he's a man of war. Now, you, this will not be easy. We're going to lose a lot of people. But here's what I would do. I would take the whole army. I'd go out there and surround them. I'd destroy the whole bunch of them. I'd get rid of all of them. Our problem is gone. We won't have this problem anymore. And Absalom said, you know what? I think that's good. Now, verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord hath appointed to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring evil upon Absalom. Whose side was God on? He's on David's side. And there's no favor to Absalom here, is there? Even the people talking to him are inspired of the Lord to deceive him. And so, as the story goes, I mean, it goes all the way back to chapter 15, and it's a good reading like a story. And so Ahithophel, he goes out because his counsel was rejected. The Bible said he went out and he hanged himself because his counsel was rejected. How would you like to pastor one of them? If you don't do things the way he said you ought to do it, if you don't follow his leading, then he's just going to, well, you're going to turn away. And the Bible said Ahithophel went out and he hanged himself because somebody didn't listen to what I thought was right. Therefore, life is no longer worth living. What a major problem. I give you my good advice, and you say, oh, no, I don't know about that. I'm just going to go shoot myself. There are people like that. This guy, Ahithophel, he was like that. He had all of that. But he could not handle the fact that he was disagreed with. I hope you're not married to one of them. 
I hope you're not around it anywhere because I think the world's full of people that have never been delivered from self. It's my way or the highway. If you don't agree with me, you're wrong. And old Ahithophel, I don't know if he was old or not, but he ended his life. He had a bad day because his counsel was not heeded. I wonder how many times do you suppose in the, we've been here 33 years this year. I wonder how many times people have disagreed with me. How many times people have gone out and yakety yacked about what they were taught. Wouldn't that have been something if I'd said, well, I've had a bunch of people disagree with me in the last couple of weeks, so I'm, I quit. What do you mean you quit? I quit. That's not a reason to quit. You believe you're right? Well, I don't believe I'm wrong. I believe what I'm saying is what is, is true. It seems to be true. I mean, I, as far as I can tell in searching the scriptures, before I get out here of analyzing all this and checking it out and checking myself, yeah, I believe I'm right. Not that I've never been wrong. I've been wrong many times, but, you know, I wouldn't come out here saying this. When I believe what I'm going to say today is wrong. <laughs> I don't think it's right. Well, I wouldn't want you to hear that. If I want to say that, I need to quit preaching. But if I believe I'm right, I say what I believe is right. That's why I keep repeating it. One of the ways I know it's right, because it works for me, and I, and I know the Bible confirms it. So, yeah, there's times that people don't agree with you. If you want to feel rejected and denied and you want to pout about that, go ahead and pout. But it's not Christian. It's a sin. You're not casting your care over on the Lord. You're so personal. I mean, it's just, just selfishness. You wrap yourself up in a little dark hole somewhere and, and everybody's against me and nobody likes me. Who said that? I think the devil just convinces a lot of people that stuff like that is true. So they don't do well. Or how about talking about sins? How about this one? How about presumptuous sins? Psalms 19. Would you quickly turn over there? Psalms 19 and verse 13. The Hebrew word for presumptuous is used 13 times in the scripture. And 12 times, the Hebrew word for presumptuous is translated pride or proud. Proud. So the word presumptuous means proud. In this particular chapter, 19 verse 13, it's translated presumptuous. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let's say proud. Keep back thy servant also from proud sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. If you want to see how much in the Bible is about pride, the dangers, the damage of pride, you get your concordance. Huge. Pride is a killer from the get-go. There'd be no proud people in heaven. Nothing proud gets any praise from God. Nothing. A proud man wants praise. He wants to be noticed. He wants to be admired. He wants the front seat. He wants his name mentioned. 
He likes the attention that he gets because he's done something and he's high up. Proud means you look down on people who are not where you are. That's why you gossip and that's why we criticize because people are less than we are. It's behind criticism. Criticism is very common in the church, but it's fostered by pride. Who set you up as an expert and know-it-all? Well, and you start finding fault. This movement, this faith walk that we're in, pride has been one of the major destructive elements in the whole thing. Pride. Who I am, what you ought to be. How much further we, us, or I am than you are. Pride. He said, keep thy servant back from presumptuous sins. Then... I shall be blameless. Wow. I mean, if I get proud out of my life, yeah. Just like in a church, cast out the scorner. The scorner is that proud person who's always causing trouble, criticizing other people, looking down on things, making judgment calls, speaking against. He's a scorner, a scoffer. He's proud. She's proud. You can't pastor them. They're proud people. And they're to be blamed. And it happens in the church with those professing Christianity all the time. As I go back where I started, sin is behind so much of what's not working for us. So much of it is sin. Just choices we have made that are wrong. We assume we're all right because after all these years of walking this way, surely I'm all right. And we give ourselves liberty to do things we shouldn't do or say things we shouldn't say. Well, I didn't mean it that way. Yes, you did. But pride, oh, we could preach a whole sermon on pride. Another word for pride is arrogance. Arrogance. Again, it's this lofty, aloof, holier-than-thou attitude. And the mouth reveals the look because what it says coming from a heart that's proud, is against something, speaks down about something, speaks ugly about something. Psalms 119, God said, Thou hast rebuked the proud that are cursed. Can you imagine if you're proud, you're cursed? If you're arrogant in the church, in God's people, you're the opposite of being humble yourself? Humble? You're the opposite of, of that. There's a curse that comes with that. No wonder things don't work. No wonder things aren't as well as they could be. No wonder. Look at the sin that is so easily. Isn't there something in the Bible about a sin that doth so easily beset us? Well, there really is. Pride was Naaman. Naaman didn't want to dip himself in the Jordan. I don't blame him. I've seen it. I've been there. I've been right there where they would like to baptize people. I'm sure that's not the site, but it's commercial. They've got a shower room there, and they've got T-shirts and everything. The Jordan River. Muskrats and catfish swimming right there where people go down the water. Naaman didn't want to dip himself in that nasty place. Why do I have to dip myself here? Why wouldn't he let me go? Naaman! You want to be healed of your leprosy or not? Then get in the water. Do that, and you'll be healed. Well, why can't I go up to Syria where we got some good rivers up there? You want to be healed? Then give up your Syrian rivers and get in this 
river right here. Naaman didn't want to do that. The publican said, I thank thee, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah for me. I thank you, Lord. I'm not like that bunch in Shelbyville. No, I'm well above all of that. Was he a proud man? Jesus said with all of his refinery, with all of his legal operations, with his tithing, his little dill, it is mint and cumin and all those little seeds and one-tenth exactly. And his, he was so careful about the law and the legal part. Jesus said he was twice as much a child of hell as sinners are. That he is not a righteous man. That he would boast of his holiness and he was everything but holy. But you couldn't tell him that, could you? Because he would point to who he was. Look what I do. Look where I go to church. Look who I'm sitting under. Look what, and look, and what do you mean I'm not? Well, yeah. Look, Lord, look how we've done as a church. We've done well. We've got it. Look at what we've got. I mean, we're, we have need of nothing. The Laodiceans said that. You know what Jesus said to him? I'm impressed. No, he didn't say that, did he? He said, you don't even know that you're miserable and you're wretched and you're blind and you're naked and you're poor. You're not spiritual. You're not blessed. You're just a bunch of people that have turned away from God and made yourself a little religious hole. Now, if you told those people that, they wouldn't ask you to speak Sunday night. And yet you told them the truth. You told them the truth, and they didn't want it. I'm telling you about how subtle deception is in the church and in the world, especially in the last days, and only a few are going to escape it. I believe that. Now, in closing, if we retreat because we don't want to hear a repeat, and we go away from God... Could God bring us back for more in order to restore? You got to like that. Could he? Could God bring some of those that have retreated back to be restored? He could. Well, nothing's working for me. Let me tell you something. Joel 2.25 says, And I will restore unto you the year that the canker worm and the palmer worm and the caterpillar and any other kind of worm or miller or iller, whatever has robbed you, I will restore it all back to you. Hang on. I would ask you to find Joel. Can you preachers find Joel? Go. Joel is after Hosea. And right before Amos, if you see those names in there, you're close. Joel 2, listen to this. 2, verse 25. And I will restore to you the year that the locusts hath eaten. In the various stages of the development of locusts. The canker worm, the caterpillar, the palmer worm. My great army which I sent among you. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. You won't be grumbling anymore about when something's going to happen. God's going to make it happen, folks. You've been disappointed so far because the healing hasn't come or the deliverance hasn't come. Hang on. Keep a good attitude because he said he will eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord. Amen. Psalm 147 says he heals the broken hearts. 
It's going to get healed. The disappointment and the sadness is going to pale in light of the deliverance that God is going to bring. Trust me, before the Lord comes, God's church will be glorious. Before Jesus, when he comes back, he will come back for a glorious church. They won't look like a bunch of zombies. Well, now I got your attention. He's coming back for a glorious church without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. Now, listen. So the days that are ahead of us, if these are the days of the Lord's return, something really good, spiritually, something really deep, something the world doesn't want but you're going to love it, is going to start happening. God is going to refine, do that work, bring about, lift up the hands that hang down. It's going to do that. See, restoration is a Bible word. You that are spiritual, restore such a one. When you see him overtaken in a fall, you do that. Bring him back. Go get him. He's been taken in a fall. He's no good anymore. God doesn't want him anymore. I'm done. I've messed up, messed up. No, I haven't. Go get him. You don't have to have classy words. Just speak what's in your heart. Speak words. God will give you the anointing. And when it's the anointing, it'll break the yoke anyway. Just speak. And healing, Jeremiah said in chapter 30 and verse 17, for I will restore health unto you. I will restore health unto you, and I will heal you of your wounds. How many of you would like to have total health? Think of that. Think of that, Carrie. Coming out of a place completely restored. Everything that was gone is back. Everything that was missing is present. The good lungs, the good heart, the good brain, and the good innards and gizzards and everything else in you, it's all restored. The will of the Lord will be done on earth before you get to heaven. His church will be well. I believe it. This word will work. Just because it doesn't look like it's working, you know what we do? We keep saying it because it has to work. Let me keep reminding you. Let me put you in remembrance. He said, you put God in remembrance. Let's keep remembering. Say it again. Sing it again. Say it a song. Say it. Say it. Say it. Go over it again because God is going to restore his people. God's going to restore those that have drifted away, those whose hearts are broken, turned this way and turned that way. Oh, Lord, what are you going to do something? Listen to what Micah said. That's a hard one to find. What's before Micah? You homeschoolers got to know that. They don't know that out to big school. The homeschoolers know that. What's before Micah? After Hosea, Joel, and Amos, you get your orange juice. OJ. And then after you get your orange juice, you get something to eat. You get some M&Ns. Micah, Nahum, see. You get your orange juice and you get your mic and name. You get your drink and you get some candy. That's the way I remember things. <laughs> then what do you do after that? Well, you get a pair of HZs. H-Z, H-Z, and then, it, then it's over. 
Haggai and Zephaniah and Malachi and Luke and then, you know, all of those. But anyway, <laughs> in Micah seven nineteen, he said, he will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. All those sins that cut you off from God, all those things that are restraining you from enjoying God, God's going to remove them, going to cast them into the depths of the sea. What's going to happen to us then? Oh, live, loving. Woo, praise God. Bow your head. Amen. Thank you, Father, in the name of Jesus. Ask you to bless your people that they might understand what this is about. That the hearing of the word is one of our treasures on this earth. Give us grace. Add grace to us, almighty God, that we not let up, give up, or turn away. Let us never look back to turn back. If we look back, let it be to be encouraged to see your faithfulness in our past. I don't know the needs of everybody in this room or what labor is taking place or what problems they're dealing with, but I ask in the name of Jesus that your anointing would be on their heart to deal with it. We give you thanks again this morning, Lord, for the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.